This morning we're going to be back in Isaiah, and um, I read to you from chapter 37. If you didn't get an outline, we've got outlines back in the back, in the back and I've got a few right here if, um, if anybody needs one, and then you can get them on Get them on Facebook as well on the on there. So just um, here, I'll tell you what. Y'all take these and there you go. Somebody wants someone, you can pass them around. Y'all raise your hand and these guys will get you one if you want one. We got some more in the back if y'all run out, but I'm trying to cover several chapters. Together, And that's not typically what I do, but you saw very quickly that if we try to cover verse by verse, we're going to be in Isaiah for the next 25, 30 years, something like that. So, um, so I'm trying to um, go through here and really pull out the things that I think are some of the main points, some of the, the primary um, lessons that he is trying to teach us by giving us the the gospel, I guess you could say, of Isaiah. So, um, in Isaiah chapter 1 through 12, you remember the focus has been on God's coming judgment on Judah, His uh, promise of a future king and a future kingdom that will not have an end. Uh, One of the primary reasons for His coming judgment was that His people had rebelled against Him and had become utterly estranged from Him. And we saw that Right off the bat, Isaiah chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 4. If you'll go there, he actually shows us a, a little bit about that. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. He said, The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know me. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they are utterly estranged. Literally, God's own children, His own church, His own people have rebelled. They have turned their back on Him. Now listen, they're still coming to church. They're still giving sacrifice. They're still singing praises. But... God looks at the lives that they are living here and what they give their lives to and what's most important in their lives, what they worship in their lives, not just what they do with their mouth, but what they do with their life and with their heart. And he says, it is not just a God, it's not a godly nation, it's a sinful nation. And they have become utterly estranged from me. Church folk, people committed to the law but they have become utterly estranged from God Almighty. And so this is the reason why judgment is coming to them. He pleads with them through Isaiah to turn back to Him. If you'll look at verse 5 in... Um, I don't know if I gave him the right, the right Scripture or not in that. Yeah, I believe I did. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 5. Look at that. He says, Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. So again, Isaiah starts off. He lays out the charge against them. And then he says very plainly, he says, I'm pleading with you. 
Don't let my judgment strike you down, but instead, turn away from this thing. Heal up these sores and these, and these, he pictures this body of a man that is just on his deathbed. And he says, you don't have to be this way. Come back home. And then in verse 18 through 20, look what he says in chapter 1. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So again, here's the picture. I'm trying to zoom up and zoom out, if you will, and give you the overview of Isaiah. His people are not following Him. They're not truly worshiping Him. They they have become estranged from Him, and He's pleading with them through Isaiah, come back home, repent, turn around, come back to Me. Look at who I am. And so whenever we go through Isaiah, what we're seeing here are prophecies of Him trying to get His people to turn back to Him, trying to convince the world even that they are estranged from Him and they need to come back to Him through His plan. But then one of the key stories, if you're looking at your outline, one of the key stories that Isaiah gives us is when God promises King Ahaz of Judah that if they will trust Him and turn back to Him, He will save them. Look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9. And the head of Ephraim, and this was Israel, not Judah. Remember, we've got a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Everybody still with me on that? All right. And so the head of Israel, or Ephraim, is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remelia. But if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And so Isaiah gives us a key story. After he lays out the charge against his people, he says, let me tell you a story about Judah, King Ahaz. This army was coming against him. They had become estranged from him. But Israel and Samaria have teamed up and they are coming together against Judah. And they're wanting to overthrow God's house, God's house of David. But if you'll stand firm in faith, If you'll turn back to me, if you'll trust me, if you'll repent of your sins and you will stand firm in faith, I will deliver you. But if you are not firm in faith, guess what? You're not going to be firm at all. In other words, you will not stand. Now, most of you know the story. He didn't do that. Uh, The majority of, uh, of Judah did not believe, and instead of repenting and trusting God, they wanted to stay in their sin and turn to the world for their security. Look at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11 through 13. For the Lord spoke to me with this strong hand upon me, and He warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, Another word, another translation says, do not say there is a confederacy, there is a confederacy. And ultimately what it was saying was this. Judah and all of its people were saying, here's how we're going to get out of this judgment. We're going to team up with another nation. We need to make a confederacy and so that we can overcome this that's coming against us. So instead of trusting God's plan and standing firm in faith, they decided we're going to go to the world for our strength. Y'all tracking with me? That's a problem. Now, go with me to um, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20 through 22. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on Him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return. 
So in other words, judgment is coming and it's going to wipe out 90% of Judah, right? But a remnant is going to return, is what Isaiah says, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. And then in verse 22, For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. And again, why is judgment coming? Judgment is coming because they have turned away from God, they don't trust God, they don't stand firm in their faith. All they're doing is going through the motions and going to church. Sound familiar? So we're not really that much different than Judah in a lot of ways, are we? And judgment is coming. It is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, but God promises, I'm going to save a remnant. But then, in Isaiah 36 through 38, I believe it is, we've got a story on the other side of this, of King Hezekiah and Judah. So several years down the road, a new king arises in Judah. Now, King Hezekiah rises up and he's a good king. He trusts the Lord. He's leading the nation of Judah in in pretty good ways. And so King Hezekiah is reigning in Judah during this time. And here we go again. Judgment is coming. The message comes to Hezekiah. Judgment is coming. The nation must repent, turn back to God, stand firm in faith, and I will save you. And the question becomes, who is it that Hezekiah and the remnant that he promised is going to trust? And so we see this in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 1 through 7. And notice this story. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, or heard the news of the judgment coming, all right, Assyria is coming, God's rod of anger. Y'all remember that from last week? God's tool that He's using to bring judgment. They're coming, and as soon as he heard it, now remember, as soon as Ahaz heard it, what did Ahaz do? Ahaz started trying to form a confederacy. Ahaz started trying to make sure he had good water supply, good food supply, reinforced his walls, made sure that he tried to depend on human strength, human wisdom, on everything in the world to save him. And yet, King Hezekiah, here on the backside of this, does something different. He tore his clothes and he covered himself in sackcloth, which was a sign of humility, a sign of him coming before God, understanding that if you don't do something, I've got no hope. And he says he covered himself with sackcloth, and where did he go? He went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household of the Lord, and he sent Shebna, who was the secretary of the household, and the senior priest, and he sent them covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is the day of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace. In other words, Assyria is coming. Children have come to the point of birth, but now there's no strength to bring them forth. And then he says, It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God. And you heard him doing that when Chris read the message earlier today. And he will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. All right. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. 
Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Alright, that's the last one, I'm sorry. So here's here's the point, and y'all listen to me because we're getting into the heart of the message now. Imagine that you've got this charges brought against Israel and against Jacob. God says, repent, return, trust in me, I will save you. Then he tells a story on the front side of it. And he says, here is what one group did. They didn't trust the Lord and they were 90% destroyed. Only a remnant was left. On the other side of all of these stories, here is another primary story of another group in Judah, the remnant led by another king. And what did they do? They trusted the Lord. And if you were to go on in Isaiah 37 and finish reading the story, you know what happened? In a single night, God sent an angel and He wiped out 185,000 men that were camped outside of Jerusalem ready to destroy. They had destroyed every other place around them and took them captive, but not Jerusalem. Why? Because they turned to the Lord. They humbled themselves. They repented of their sin. They trusted Him. And as a result of that, God saved them. And so you've got these two stories. In the middle, what we have are all these chapters of God's judgment on this nation, this nation, this nation, this nation, and so all the way through there. So what is God trying to tell us in all of these chapters that are in between these two stories? Well, if you'll look at my points here, notice what he says here, or notice what I say here in in number one. God reveals the weakness of all that we think is strong, dependable, and worthy of our devotion in life. When God shows us the judgment of all these nations, He talks about the strength of their horses, the wisdom of their people, the strength of their mighty warriors. He talks about the the, the beauty of the women. He talks about all the things that people give their life and their devotion to, all the things that Ahaz and Judah had gave their worship and their devotion to. And instead of repenting from that, God shows them, let me show you what the weakness is in all of these things that you give your life to. Let's look at just a few of them, starting with Israel. In Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, you're going to see that they trusted in the wisdom and the strength of men. Notice what he says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread, all support of water, the mighty man, the soldier, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, and the skilled magician. So again, where do they put their trust in? They put their trust in their own supplies and what their own provision is able to do. They put their trust in the wisdom of men, their leaders, the strength of their army, the wisdom and the counselors. Instead of turning to God, you know where they go to for their wisdom? They're going up here on 2nd Street to the, what is it, the Three of Cups? That's right. They're going up here to to the prophets, if you will, of the world. They're turning to uh, tarot cards and to sorceries and to all the things that have nothing to do with God. And so here we have, God says, I'm going to take it all away. How's He going to take it all away? He's going to destroy it. 
He's going to wipe it out. And so men are trusting in their wisdom and their strength and, and in order to, uh, to have safety and security in this life. And God says, I'm going to show you the weakness of that stuff. And you know what he's going, how He's going to do that? He's going to take it away. He's going to show you that in a moment, every bit of that is no good whatsoever. And then, next we see that He takes away something else. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. So what are the women trusting in in this society? Where do they find their security? Where do they find their their satisfaction and their safety at? In their beauty. In their beauty. They spend all their time trying. And I'm not saying that it's wrong for a woman to be beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that. But I am saying that when you use that for your own glory, for you to put on the show in the world of who you are, instead of using that for God's glory, using that, Peter said, a woman's beauty is really comes from a gentle and quiet spirit, a godly spirit that follows God. A, a, a woman that wants to be godly in all of her ways. But yet, this was not what we see back in this society. And God says, here's what I'm going to do, because this is where they find their satisfaction and security. I'm going to strike them with scabs on their heads. How does that feel? What does that look like? Anybody want a scab-headed woman in here? He says, and I'm going, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. And then look what he says. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants. In other words, this is what they live their life for. This is what they want. Everything in their heart's desire is not about worshiping God. It's not about treasuring Him. It's not about finding their satisfaction and their security in Him and using their beauty to glorify Him. Instead, it's about just being beautiful so everybody can see who they are. And He says, I'm going to take it all away. And I'm going to take away the bracelets. I'm going to take away the scarves. Look what He says in verse 20. The headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets. Am I misinterpreting this, anybody? The signet rings, the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags. Got any Gucci mamas in here? The handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, the veils. And instead of perfume, guess what there's going to be? Rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. So you see what God's doing? He's revealing the weaknesses and the, the, the stupidity of putting your trust and your security and finding your satisfaction and giving your devotion and your worship to these things. Are y'all tracking with me today? And he says, instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground. And then look at this. And in that day, here's what's going to happen. Seven women are going to take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread, we will wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name and take away our reproach. You know what that's saying? There ain't a man around that wants one of these women. 
There's going to be seven women that'll take hold of one man and say, listen, please, if you will just, we'll eat our own bread. You don't have to provide for us. You don't have to do anything. Just take away our reproach of how we are because again, God has removed all of the things that they put their security and their trust in. And you think about the nation that we live in today. You want to know what the number one business in the world is? Somebody take a guess. What's the number one business in the world? Well, I'd say you're a close number two. Cosmetics is probably close. Pornography. Pornography. The number one business in the world. Multi-billions upon billions are made in that because there are so many people, mostly women, that sell themselves, a lot of men too, but sell themselves for their beauty, for all these things, and that is the extreme end of it. God's not just talking about prostitution here. He's talking about the heart of a person that finds their satisfaction, their security, and they give their devotion and their worship to these things in the world. The men gave it to strength and, and security and, um, and, and wisdom. And the women gave it to, to beauty and to being all that they could be for the world to be able to look at. Are y'all following me? That's a problem. We also see here that um, we see in... Um, verse Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1 through 5, that they put their hope and their security in the nations of the world. All stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit. In other words, when trouble comes, where do these people go? They don't turn to the Lord like Hezekiah did. They do like Ahaz did, and they turn to the world. And so what does God have to do through these chapters? He has to show them the, the, the uh, fragileness and the temporariness of all of these nations and all these people that you'd make alliances with. And he says here, here's what's going to happen to Damascus. Here's what's going to happen to Egypt. Here's what's going to happen to Babylon. Here's what's going to happen to all of your surrounding neighbors. Here's what's going to happen to every one of them. And if you think for one second there is anything or anybody in this world that will save you from my judgment other than my spirit and my plan, you are dead wrong. There ain't but one thing that's going to save you. There ain't one thing that's going to give you the happiness that you're looking for, the security that you're looking for, the satisfaction that you're looking for, and that's my spirit and my plan. And he says here, you make a plan, but not mine. You make an alliance, but not of my spirit. And as you do that, you add sin upon sin. And they sent out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to humiliation. For though his officials are at zone and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. And so again, how does that apply in our context today? Well, we don't necessarily have Assyria coming against us, and so we're not looking for allies in China or, or allies in, in Ukraine or allies in, in Europe or anywhere else. But instead, here's the way it applies to us. We see here that 
we are the kind of people that God is trying to open our eyes to our sinfulness and He's telling us when trouble comes, you don't turn to things in the world. You come to me first. But how many of us are you like me? I know I've got a couple of situations I've been dealing with here recently. So to give you an example. I've had a couple of situations I've been dealing here with here recently. And in my head, I've been trying to work out, okay, here's what I say, here's what I do, here's how I do this, and here's how I do that. It wasn't until I was laying in bed the other night when I realized I've not yet took this to God. I have sit there and I have tried to figure out how I'm going to do this and how I'm going to fix this. I have not turned to the Lord. Y'all see what I'm talking about? So how many of us in our life, when trouble comes against us, instead of trying to find our safety and security and turning to Him, asking Him for His direction, asking Him for His plan, we figure out in our own minds what we're going to do. You know how many people, and listen, I'm the same way, so before I say this, I'm not trying to make any of you feel guilty, because I do it too, so many times. But do you know how many people I counsel and give them the counsel of God? And do you know how few times people actually follow that? Very few. Very few times do people actually follow God's plan and God's, God's, God's spirit. Instead, they've already got figured out in their own heads, here's what I'm going to do, here's how I'm going to do it, here's the path I'm going to take. And Because again, you rely on your own wisdom, on your own strength. Can I get an amen from somebody? And this is where we fall at. And so we're seeing here that God has to reveal the weakness of all that we think is strong and dependable and worthy of our devotion in life. I'll go through the other ones very quickly. Look at Isaiah chapter 13, verse 19 through 20. He says here, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. So again, Babylon was this glorious city, was this powerful place. As a matter of fact, years down the road from here, they're going to overthrow Assyria. And yet, God says to Judah, don't you put your trust in Babylon. Don't you put your trust in them. I know they look glorious. I know they look splendorous. I know it looks like this is a good path. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because there's coming a day when that's going to be wiped off the map and it'll never even be inhabited again. So he reveals the weakness of it. Look with me at Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of the dawn. And he's talking to the king of Babylon here, talking to the spirit of Satan. But the king of Babylon has this spirit in him. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. Babylon was so great. Babylon was so glorious. Babylon was so splendorous that this king had been elevated to a place in his head that he said, I'm God. And this is the same heart that Satan had in the garden. This is the same heart that each and every one of, of us have. Ultimately, look at Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. I'll prove it to you. See, just in case you think that you don't have this heart, look at this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, right, and unrighteousness of men 
who suppress their unrighteousness, who, who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. How do they do it? For what can be known about God is plain to them because He's shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, they're without excuse to not magnify the truth about who God is. But instead, look what they do. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. And look at this last verse. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so in other words, what we see in that is that we knew who God is. We see His magnificence. And instead of declaring Him great, we trade Him for things in this world, for glory, for splendor, for all the things. We're no different than that king of Babylon. We're no different than Satan in our sin. We have the same kind of heart. And so God has to expose the weakness and the, the stupidity of this kind of trust in our life. And then next, let me go to the last point for sake of time. Notice the reason why we do this. The reason why we devote our lives to created things, the reason why we find our satisfaction and security in these things is because our view of, small, of God is too small. Let me say that again. Our, God, our view of God is too small. Way too small. And this was their problem too. Let me show you some scriptures to back that up. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 36 verse 13 through 20. Then Rabshabekah, or whatever his name is, stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Remember, he's the messenger of the king of Assyria, right? Listen to what his view of God is. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. In other words, don't listen to the Lord. You better listen to the king of Assyria because look at how great he is. Here's what he says. Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of you his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. That sounds like a good plan, don't it? <laughs> That's right. Smart young lady. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. In other words, I'm going to give you all this. Just come and follow me. A land of bread, a land of vineyards. And keep going. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. And listen to what he says next. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? And where are the gods of uh, Seraphim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Let me ask you a question. What is the king of Assyria's problem? His view of God is way too small. His view of himself is way too big. 
In other words, this guy says, there's not a God that can defeat me. And he looks at Jerusalem and tells the people of God, don't put your trust in God. I mean, look around you. Look at what God's done for you. Look at where you are in life. and look at the, Don't put your trust in God. You better put your trust in me. Put your trust in worldly things and worldly people and I'll give you a land that will satisfy you and I will bring you into a place that gives you happiness and satisfaction. What's the problem? His view of God is way too small. Same way with the king of Babylon. King of Babylon, I will ascend. I will put my throne above his throne. What's his problem? His view of God is way too small. Way too small. The king of Moab is the same way, and you've got those scriptures, so I'm not going to take you through those scriptures. But anyway, I want you to look with me at God and how He gives the view of Himself to His people. He resolves this. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 12 through 18. Look at what He says. God says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? You know what the hollow of a hand is? Right there. Right there. And you know what God said? God said, I'm the one who can take all the waters of the world and I can put every one of them like a little drop of water in the palm of my hand. What's God trying to do here? He's trying to bring your view up to where it needs to be. And then notice what He says next. Who has marked off the heavens with a span? You know what a span is? A span is the distance from basically from your from your thumb to your finger. And so basically that's a, that's a span. And God says, I'm the one that marked off the heavens. Now again, he's talking about the universe here. The universe. There are over 100,000 million stars in our galaxy alone, the Milky Way. And yet there are billions of galaxies. And he takes and he measures it all off with a span. And notice what he says next. Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? In other words, who, who took a teaspoon? Y'all know what a teaspoon is, right? Who took a teaspoon and collected all the dust of the earth and can put it in a teaspoon? And then he says next, he says, who weighs the mountains? You ever went been to the Rocky Mountains or the Great Smoky Mountains or been on the Blue Ridge Parkway and looked across the Appalachian? He said, who takes the mountains of all? And if you ever seen, you ain't seen mountains till you go to Guatemala. And yet he takes the mountains of all the world and he puts them in scales and he weighs the hills in a balance. And then he says, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What's the answer to that? It's, an, it's, it's immeasurless. And then he says, of what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and whom did made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations, all the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. What's God trying to do? Are y'all seeing what the primary purpose of all of this is? God said, here is the problem with mankind. Y'all pay attention. Because this is our problem. This is the reason why women trust in beauty and find their satisfaction in the things of the world. This is the reason why men are concerned with strength and power and, and wisdom and, and leaders and all of this stuff. The reason why we 
That's where we put our devotion and our worship and everything at is because our view of God is way too small. Way too small. And our view of ourselves is way too high. Are y'all tracking with me? And so God has to bring Himself up to where just a little bit of where you can catch a glimpse of it. And He has to bring you back down where you belong. He does that through judgment, through discipline. And then He reveals to us who He is and His greatness through them things as well. Skip over to the next verse with me in, um, in chapter 14, verse... Um, I'm sorry, chapter 40, verse 21 through 30. I'm coming to a close. And the Lord Himself will make known, will make Himself... In a, sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Let me read from Him. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have not you understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like what? Grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely they are planted, scarcely they are sown. Talking about the rulers of the earth here and all the people we put our trust in. And he says here, Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. And when he blows on them, guess what happens? They wither away. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. What's he talking about? The stars. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. And notice what he says about the stars. He brings all their hosts by number. You remember what I said a minute ago? They, they believe there's over 100,000 million. Now, I didn't even know that number existed. But they believe there's over 100,000 million stars in our galaxy alone. And there are billions more galaxies. And yet he calls out the stars and their hosts by number. He calls them all by what? <laughs> what is He trying to do here? He's trying to show you how great He is and how insignificant we are. We're grasshoppers, not even grasshoppers. He's the one who knows every star by name. And then notice what He says, By the greatness of His might and because He is strong in power, not one is missing. Still talking about the stars there. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? In other words, because they were going through this judgment, because they were going through these trials, they said, well, God just don't care about me. And have you felt that way before? God is not, well, look, my way is hidden from God. He's not watching over me. And why are you saying, well, my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint and He does not grow weary and His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. The youngest, the strongest of you will faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. 
But the ones who wait for the Lord, because remember, where are they? They're in the middle of trouble. They're in the middle of trial. And what are they tempted to do? They're tempted to turn to all the world. What should I do? Which way should I turn? How do I get through this? What direction do I take in this trial, in this circumstance, in this trouble? And God says, listen, no matter who you turn to, turn to the strongest in the world. They will grow weary. Turn to the wisest in the world. They're not as wise as you think they are. Turn to anything you want to in this world. Turn to beauty and guess what will happen to beauty? It fails. Turn to whatever you want to in this world. Give your devotion to it all. But I'm going to tell you this. The ones who wait for the Lord, guess what will happen to them? They shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. And they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So what is God trying to do here? The whole purpose of the reason why He gives Ahaz in that story and Hezekiah in this story is so that all in between you understand there is nothing that you can turn to that will give you what you need other than the Lord God Almighty. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? So He reveals the weaknesses and the stupidity of putting your trust and your devotion in things that come to nothing. And the reason why you do that is because your view of God is way too small. And your view of yourself and others is way too high. And so he says here, don't do that. What do you do in the midst of trouble? Wait on the Lord. Have you not known? Have you not heard? He's the everlasting God. He's the creator of all things. So wait on the Lord and you will renew your strength. You will mount up with wings like eagles. You will run and you will not be weary and you will walk and not faint. That is God's message to His people this morning. Wait on Him. Whatever you're going through. So I close with this. Is God too small in your eyes? Is God too small in your eyes? Well, let me give you a quick test to see. When trials come in your life, who do you turn to? Is the first place you do like Hezekiah. You go straight to the Lord, you humble yourself, you throw yourself on the altar of God, and you pour out to Him, this is where I'm at. And a lot of people say, well, yeah, I did that last Sunday. I don't have to keep doing that again. Don't listen to people that tell you that. I know they mean well because they think they're saying, well, if you really trust God, then you'll just leave it right here. And I get that thinking. But let me tell you what the Bible teaches us. The Bible says that we need to be like that persistent widow who came over and over and over again saying, get me justice on my adversary. And you remember what Jesus said? Will God not avenge His elect who cry out to Him day and night though He bears long with them? Listen, just because you came and you poured your heart out last Sunday, does that mean it's gone this Sunday? What did God tell Judah? Wait on the Lord. And while you're waiting, you know what you keep doing? You keep praying. You keep trusting. You keep pouring your heart out to Him. And so the question is, where do you turn to in your trials? The first phone call you make is to your mama. Listen, your mama's a good, wise person, I'm sure. But is she the one that can give you what you need to get through these troubles? Not necessarily. 
Now, is it wrong for you to go and sit with your mama or your daddy or your friend or your counselor? Is that wrong? No, but if that's the first place you turn, God is way too small in your eyes. God is way too small. Do you find your safety, your security, your satisfaction in created things? Is that what you give your devotion to? You know, I've heard people say, and I know I'm already been, I'm close to getting to an hour of preaching this morning. But I do, I, I, I hear people, and over the years, that's what the people have told me to my own face. The reason why I don't come to your church, my own community right here, they say the reason I don't come to your church is because I'll drive by there at 1230 and sometimes y'all still there. I said, yes, sir. That's exactly right. I have people that will tell me. They'll say, um, that preacher preaches too long. He's, he's an hour, he, he'll preach an hour sometimes is what they say. Let me ask you a question. How many hours are in a week? 24, um, 168. 168 hours in a week. And I take one of them to give you the Word of God. Have I preached too much? No, I mean honestly. 168 hours in a week. And I take one of them to give you the Word of God. God is way too small in your eyes. Way too small in your eyes. Do you find that your devotion in life is more for things of this world? more for getting to the restaurant after this over with. That's more important than what you do here. Do you find that the things that you work for in this life and the goals that you want to achieve and the, the riches that you need to gain, do you find that those are the things that you work hardest for in this life? Come on, somebody say amen. If that is true, God is way too small in your eyes and the things of this world are way too big. And we got to turn that around. Can you trust God for your justice in wrongs committed against you? Or do you hold grudges and want to take out vengeance for yourself? Because if you don't trust God that He's going to right every wrong, and you don't trust that His judgment is going to take care of it, and you can wait on Him, God is way too small in your eyes. And you are way too big. Because you say you are better at divvying out judgment than God is. I can satisfy myself in this better than God will ever be able to satisfy me. God is way too small in your eyes. And you are way too big. I just simply ask you this morning, do you see in your life that your view of God needs to grow? That your understanding of who God is needs to grow? And the more that that grows, the more trust you are going to have in Him. The more you're going to be more like Hezekiah and less like Ahaz. Because let's just be honest, most of the time we're more like Ahaz than we are Hezekiah, right? And so today is the day that God opens the truth of Isaiah to us and reveals to us those things and those people are weak and they are not dependable. But I am the everlasting God. And who, to whom will you compare with me? And you know what the answer to that is? No one and nothing compares to you. You are the Holy One of Israel. And there is no one better to turn to in my time of need than you. So God, 
I say to you this morning, I will wait on you. And I know that you are going to renew my strength. Now it's going to be years down the road before this happens with them. You understand that, right? But I'm going to wait on you. And you are going to renew my strength. I am going to mount up with wings like eagles. I am going to run and I am not going to grow weary. I'm going to walk and not faint. Why? Because I trust you and you alone. And that's where I find my safety. That's where I find my security. And that's what I give my devotion and my worship in life to. And there is nothing else worthy of it. Amen.